2: Hey, friends, Kristen here with a quick correction. In this episode, I share a story about a girlfriend of mine who got harassed in an Uber. But in this episode, I say it was a Lyft. But in fact, I fact checked the story with my friend. And she said it was, in fact, an Uber, not a Lyft. And that quote, it was intense, but I got two weeks of half off rides. So worth it. Dot, dot, dot. Sad face emoji. Now on to the show.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never
3: Told You from HowStuffWorks.com
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about Uber, Lyft, TaskRabbit, Instacart, etc. All of these new app based companies that comprise the sharing or gig economy as it's also known as
4: yes I gotta say I love a lot of these apps they make life easier I use Instacart like once a week probably um because who has time to go to the grocery store this episode is not brought to you by any of these companies I assure you
2: but I am curious has it replaced your grocery shopping for yeah. the most part yeah really. Mm-hmm. My husband is uh, currently obsessed with Uber Eats, which means we are not grocery shopping as much as we should be.
4: Yeah, well, so I've been sick, and my boyfriend has been away working, and so there's been really no incentive for me to, like, cook a big dinner, because I just don't have the appetite for it, so... I've been using Uber Eats. And i got to tell you, I was actually disappointed because, not in Uber Eats, but I pulled up my Caviar app the other night, which is another meal delivery service. They'll pick it up from a restaurant. They are no longer in Atlanta. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I have to delete Caviar from my phone. Um, but I definitely have been relying on Uber Eats and Instacart quite a bit. I actually uh, met my Instacart driver at the door the other day. and said thank you so much you don't realize how much you're saving a really sick person (laughs) as she hands me bags of chicken noodle soup uh, Tylenol cold and sinus saltine crackers well this
2: reminds me too of a women in tech breakfast that I went to a while back where uh, this panel was going around giving their just go-to advice for essentially making your life easier if you're an ambitious woman in tech or really anywhere. And one of the oldest women on the panel who also has kids who is a uh, VIP in uh, her sector Set outsource everything that you can. Oh, yeah. And a lot of that relies on the sharing economy. I was actually talking to a girlfriend last night who is working a really demanding job, and she has started outsourcing her house cleaning via... It's not TaskRabbit, but it's something similar. Handy. It might be through Handy. Um, and she talked about how it's so worth the money because of just the the... Any cleaning-related tension that might be in the house between her and her husband is just taken care of.
4: Now, side note for your friend, she is brilliant because this is something I've literally discussed in therapy. And my therapist has encouraged my boyfriend and me, who live together, um, to ethically hire... Uh, a professional or some type of contractor to come in and clean at least once a month. And of course, like we don't necessarily have the time or the money. And I also have that guilt of like I've at least got to pick the house up first. I feel the same way because the thing is, and 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 uh, boyfriend dog, you know, with with him being in the studio and me having been sick and whatever, like we haven't been able to clean the house, and it both stresses us out to the max. But the thing is. We still just have so much stuff on the floor. So he was like, you know, while you're not feeling well and I'm at work, like, why don't we use one of those apps to like have someone come over and clean? And I was like, I'm not having a stranger come in this house to pick up when there is so much on the floor that they can't even like start the vacuum. Right. Like I at least need to put some crap in the attic before (laughs) I have somebody come over. But then I also have the fear. Of all of these horror stories I've heard about, like, the handyman or cleaner comes over and, like, extorts you for money or, like, won't leave, I used... I won't tell you the app. I don't want to upset anyone. Um, I used one of those apps to have a handyman come over. I needed the driveway and the backpack. I needed, like, everything around my house pressure washed, because we have all sorts of gross stuff everywhere on the driveway. And, uh... Bless his heart, that guy did not know how to use a pressure washer. I had to go out. I wasted like two hours that day, like helping him run the pressure washer. Oh dear. So I wasted a lot of time and money. And so I don't think I will ever, (laughs) ooh, I don't think I'll ever use like one of those handyman apps again, but potentially a a house cleaner I would.
2: So the, how these apps in the sharing economy can backfire, uh, both on the user and the, employee is going to be the focus of this conversation um, and beyond the potential of people who are not qualified, you know, being hired to, to do these jobs, there is a physical risk factor that um, is becoming more and more of a, a concern a topic of conversation. For instance, when I was in New York a couple weeks ago, I was at a, a girlfriend's apartment and talking about uh, heading back to the airport. And I was saying that I always use Lyft. I prefer them. The drivers get a larger cut um, than they do through Uber. So I try to support them with that. And uh, usually they're cheaper. And she said, oh, yeah, well, I, I can ride for free on Lyft for a really long time. And I asked why, of course. And she said, well, um, ever since a driver locked me in the car and wouldn't let me out until I gave him my phone number, they're giving me free rides left and right. And I'm not saying this to try to implicate Lyft in any way, shape or form, but she also said it so casually and so excitedly of like, oh yeah, I get to ride around for free. This is kind of amazing. But I was like, wait no, wait, no, let's go, let's go back. Uh, was that not terrifying? She was like, oh yeah, oh yeah. She's also very tough though. You know, she's like, she's got that, you know, New York tough thing and was trying to kind of play it off. But, uh, yeah, there's the, there's, there's also the, the risk involved with the sharing economy. And also too, that's one reason why we're seeing, not only in the U.S., but abroad, the rise of women-only sure. taxi companies.
4: Yeah, and- I mean, I think I think all the time about uh, also being in New York a couple months ago and getting into the front seat of an Uber. Just wasted. Um, we might have gone out for drinks with some listeners. Those listeners might have been incredibly generous with, uh, buying us drinks. And anyway, you guys got to be wasted. And I get in this Uber and I'm like arguing in a good natured way. The driver was very nice. But I'm like arguing with him about Beyonce's feminism because he was like basically the whole line of like Beyonce can't be a feminist because she doesn't wear pants and like she's she's a disgrace to women and pop. You should listen to Adele instead. Nothing against Adele. But I like think back to that and it's like Anything could happen, you know? And I mean, that's true of life in general. And true of traditional cab drivers. Yeah. But like, there is that that thing of like, hey, you are just trusting that this person will get you to your destination safely, not touch you or do anything to harm or intimidate you. And then unlock the car and let you out when you get to your destination.
2: Well, and that's the thing. There are obviously those very real and legitimate safety concerns that these companies like Uber, Lyft, et cetera, are needing to be more accountable to. But then also there is on the back end of it the concern for how equitable these situations are for the people who are taking these gigs, who are, you know, doing these side hustles, or they might be their main hustles, because the sharing economy has grown so much and it's worth so much that there's the risk that, I mean, even at this point, we're trying to gigify so much that Mm -hmm. we are not doing it in a very ethical way. So just to put some numbers, though, Around why, uh, this is so bright and shiny for Silicon Valley investors. So according to data from PricewaterhouseCoopers, uh, the sharing economy global revenue could grow from roughly 15 billion today to 335 billion by 2025. That is nuts. So obviously we got a gold mine and people are rushing to grab as much of it as they can. And they're very popular. We just talked about all of these apps and outsourcing that we're doing for our day-to-day lives. Uh, the Pew Research Center in 2016 found that 72% of Americans have used a shared or on-demand service.
4: Yeah, and I mean, when you look at the breakdown of who the workers are, a lot of them, most of them are between 18 18- and 34 versus just a third of the general workforce being between 18 and 34. Uh, the majority, uh probably because of their age and our generation tends to have more college degrees, the majority of the gig economy workers do have at least some college experience, and most use their gig as a supplementary income, not as their main income.
2: And they're also way likelier to be male, especially if they are an Uber driver. Um, just 19% of Uber drivers in 2015 were women versus Lyft, which maybe this is why I'm so into Lyft, even after my friend's uh, horror story. Lyft uh, employs 30% female drivers and also has a lot more female passengers like myself and also employs a leadership team that's half women.
4: Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Well, yeah, I, um, I might be using Lyft more often now. Anyway, um, there's also the, the interesting gender breakdown that economists have commented on that men are more likely to do the higher paid gig economy work like, uh, being a handyman like driving for uber doing all of this stuff versus women who tend to and of course this is all broad brush stuff but tend to do more house cleaning work more of the light work quote unquote uh work on etsy etsy is of course largely women it's something like what like 86 percent women that is exactly the percent i just i literally pulled that out of my head um maybe because i read it last night um And of course to that, Etsy says, listen, not everybody's goal is to make a million dollars working in this gig economy. But I do think that that's important to keep kind of in the back of your mind when you're looking at who's employed doing what work and, you know, without any sort of health insurance or benefits.
2: And on the flip side of that, if we look at the users, they tend to be younger. No surprise. Uh, We tend to have college degrees, but might be on a financially shaky ground. I know that one reason why myself and a lot of my friends use Uber and Lyft is because it's so much cheaper than getting a cab and also... Or
4: paying for DUI.
2: Well, exactly. <laughs> well, and also we live in Atlanta, and unless you are at the airport, cabs kind of don't exist around here.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, so that brings up this socioeconomic divide that Pew Research also highlighted.
4: Yeah. So, you know, we mentioned a second ago that, oh, my God, so many Americans use ride sharing, use food delivery, use all of these sharing economy apps, but... Pew found that just 10% of people who live in homes with earnings below $30,000 have booked trips with ride-hailing companies, for instance. And nearly 50% of these people aren't familiar with them at all. And when you move from ride-sharing to a platform like Airbnb – Only 4% of Americans at that earning point have used those home sharing or home rental, uh, platforms, while 69% of people with earnings below 30,000 as their whole household number don't even know about them at all. Oh yeah. I mean, all of this stuff is, to me, like very much a, a luxury. I mean,
2: it's it's not uh, you're not spending a ton of money necessarily at one time, unless we go real bonkers on Uber Eats, which has happened before. Oh yeah, uh, but I mean, it's still
4: like going out and getting a manicure rather than painting your nails at home, you know? Exactly, exactly. And if you are pinching every penny, counting every dollar, like you're not going to want to pay the whatever $7.99 Instacart fee to get your groceries delivered within the very next hour, which. <laughs> I I do a lot actually cuz I want my chicken noodle soup come on but you know I mean and and I'm 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 saying this in jest because of course that's an incredibly privileged thing to be able to say to yeah. not only be aware of the app and use the app but also pay the extra money to get it delivered as fast as possible absolutely um but there was
2: also this issue of inclusivity and here's kind of the twisted thing. So there's this paper, uh, that came from business for social responsibility that was really pointing to inclusivity as a major benefit for both share economy workers and customers. And one of their consultants said, quote, the sharing economy offers a way for people to act more independently and to democratize things. Okay. I can see how you would come to that conclusion. Uh, It is a more human business model than the old economy with corporations and customers. And you know what? Ideally, yes, absolutely. Um, There are also benefits for the companies. When you have more people who can participate in the sharing economy, companies are going to benefit from untapped revenue, i.e. user acquisition. And a more intentional focus on inclusion could strengthen companies' contributions to communities and build trust with governments seeking to regulate them. So this all sounds so great, right?
4: Sounds so great. So great. Um And, you know, there is a benefit. There can be a, a really great benefit for marginalized or underserved communities when you have things like ride-sharing apps. And that inclusivity could help connect people to goods and services that maybe are out of reach otherwise. You know, it could uh, dismantle some of those barriers that people face to ownership, for instance, if they're able to, like, use Zipcar, where they can, you know share a car essentially to get from their, you know, train station to wherever they're going. Um, there was a New York University study on the sharing economy impact that was based on data from Get Around, which is a car sharing service kind of like a Zipcar. Um, they found that ride sharing had a disproportionately positive effect on lower income consumers because Ownership is a barrier to consumption. So if people are allowed and able to consume, that's a boon to companies who are trying to make money, but it's also a boon for people in communities who are just trying to get places. Uh, Uber did a study in L.A., and they found that their UberX rides are available in 21 low-income neighborhoods at a lower price than taxis, and that they arrive in less than half the time. And there have been other studies that have shown that uh, telephone dispatch taxi services in poor urban neighborhoods, for instance, are consistently slower and less reliable than taxi services in wealthier communities. And I remember, I mean, this was before Uber and Lyft, but I remember being at a birthday party years ago now, and everybody was just so drunk. And um, we literally tried to call a cab, but it just... We kept getting a busy signal, busy signal. And when we finally got through, they were like, yeah, it's going to be about two hours. Um, It was already like one in the morning. Uh, So our friend who had just had, and we were like downtown uh, in Augusta. And our friend who had. First mistake right there. No kidding. Uh, And our friend who had just had a lot less to drink than the rest of us, but was not sober, was the one who like slowly and carefully drove us home. Yeah. So. so,
2: I mean, obviously, like, these are, these are good services. Like, we can use these kinds of things. They're positives.
4: Yeah. And I mean, uh, according to a Pew survey, I mean, Pew's all over this. For, uh, 54% of ride sharing users in general feel that these services are less likely to discriminate against people based on their race or appearance than taxis are. We'll come back to that one <laughs> in a little bit. But, I mean, this is important because access to transportation, the Brookings Institution found, uh, to get to work is correlated with upper mobility. I mean, there's, that's super common sense. There's no surprise there. Being able to get to work on time is hugely correlated with continuing to
2: be employed. But unfortunately, in a lot of metro areas, including Atlanta, where you and I are, uh, do not have adequate public transportation options. And only a quarter of low- and middle-skilled jobs are accessible via public transit that take 90 minutes or less Mm -hmm. in the largest U.S. metro areas. And low-income people are more likely to work during off hours and less likely to have a driver's license. Not to mention, like, your shorter commutes usually don't happen if you are living
4: in a low-income area right yeah and i i um again like i don't mean to make this all about me i'm just trying to give anecdotal examples yeah right yeah <laughs> right um but so i was looking at zillow the other day to see like oh can my boyfriend and i afford to move anytime soon no okay cool so i found uh an affordable nice house for rent like way farther out than where we live now and i was like okay well I wonder how long it would take me to get to work. And I plugged it in and during a no traffic time in Atlanta, that's pretty rare, but during like a time of no traffic, it would take me about 25 minutes from that house to get to the office, which that's not terrible, especially based on Atlanta times. Um, and I was like, well, I don't know if I want to drive that. Like it's kind of close to a, a train station. MARTA is the train system here in Atlanta. Let me, let me see according to Google Maps, how long it would take me to get to my job using Atlanta mass transit over 90 minutes. Oh, I'm not surprised. Because I would have had to take a bus or walk a long way to the train station, first of all, and then take the train all the way down. And I'm like, I don't know if it disappears into a wormhole. Why is it taking the train so long to get to Midtown Atlanta? Anyway, take the train all the way to Midtown Atlanta and then take another bus to the office. And it's like, I have the luxury of a Honda Fit. I could make that twenty-five or thirty-minute commute from that far-out house, you know, in the part of Atlanta that's still affordable. Um, but far from everybody has that luxury.
2: Yeah. So again, benefits to the sharing economy, but that is really when all other variables aren't controlled for. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That this is the best-case scenario situation for this, because of course. As we've already mentioned, there are obvious downsides, starting with shrinking workers' rights.
4: Yeah, so this is a huge thing that economists have pointed out, that labor protections under the Fair Labor Standards Act generally don't apply to these independent contractors. And that's why you should be scared about the numbers that Kristen cited at the top of the podcast in terms of like the billions of dollars that the sharing economy is going to be worth by 2025. Because... That's a lot of money going to people who don't have any legal recourse against abuse, et cetera, et cetera. So um, Airbnb, for instance, requires people to waive their right to sue or join any class action lawsuit. And uh, Tom Slee, who's the author of What's Yours is Mine, told broadly that he sees this general chipping away of protections for people who've fought for those protections tooth and nail, women people of color, people with disabilities. He said it's not really fashionable to be in favor of bureaucracy and rules, but equal pay for equal work, minimum wage laws, employment standards that limit employers' right to fire at will, and anti-discrimination laws were the result of years of struggle by feminists, unionists, and anti-racism groups. I don't think they should be thrown away just because a new app has a rating system. And I mean... That whole rating system thing is something that Palak Shaw, with the National Domestic Workers Alliance points out can hold a lot of power over someone's head. Uh, Shaw said that that rating system that, like, every app has can result in workers finishing a job when they don't feel safe just for fear of receiving a poor rating and therefore less work. Because, yeah, I mean, if you do a terrible job, you should get a terrible rating. If you harass a customer, yeah, you should get a terrible rating and be fired. But... If you are at the home of someone who is a grade A jerk, maybe they're harassing you or threatening you or whatever. I mean, to to have to feel like you've got to put up with that just to be able to continue to work. Because who knows, maybe you haven't been able to get a job in the mainstream economy. And this is the way that you have to make money. And companies would say, oh, well, that's why we allow our employees
2: to also rate the customers. But I, I it doesn't account for the actual situation that that employee might still have to go through in order to get to the point of rating a customer. I mean, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, et cetera, they can kick people out of their cars and say, you know, I'm not going to deal with this person mm-hmm. and it's not going to hurt them necessarily. But Shaw brings up a really important point, um, especially if you are in someone else's home. I mean, yeah. I think the situation is probably different with a ride sharing uh, setup because mm-hmm. you're in your own car. Yeah. You know, so you you might have feel like you have a little bit more leverage to not put up with ridiculous people.
4: Yeah. And I mean, I think also, I mean, you're likely if you have to kick out a violent passenger, someone's probably going to catch that on a on an iPhone, honestly, like the the woman who was drunk in that Uber guy's car and started, like, hitting him and throwing things at him from the back seat, and he was trying to remove her and not, like, hurt her at the same time, and she was hitting him, kicking him. I mean, it was, it can be crazy, and not that taxi drivers don't put up with that, right? but there's a lot of abuse that you can take as a worker for some of these gig apps. Which is why some people are pushing
2: Uber and others to require drivers to have cameras in their cars like we're doing with police, both to protect customers and drivers. Um, But it's like once you get home, your shift is done, okay, you might have pocketed some cash, probably not as much as uh, advertisements would lead you to believe that you're going to make. But you're not going to get any benefits on top of that, unless, of course, you are classified as a direct employee of, say, a handy Or Uber.
4: Yeah. And I mean, because of things like the terrible childcare system and non existent family leave system in this country, like maybe you are a woman who's opted to go for a more flexible work schedule like an Uber or a Lyft can provide. But yeah, they're, they're, it's not like they're providing for you in any way. Not, I mean, no, person who's employing a contractor has to provide for you in that way.
2: Well, and that's the thing. I mean, this to me is a symptom of a broader issue Mm -hmm. of our contract work economy and how uh, in IMHO, there are way too many massive corporations that are allowed to rely way too much on contract work so that they don't have to pay benefits. Which
4: is interesting because I feel like a lot of this app culture came out after the, or, or from the recession when it's like, okay, well, everybody's been laid off, but we can bootstrap our own app and make millions. And, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who's going to create this app and make a lot of money to make everybody's lives easier. Um, so, but then you just end up with a workforce that still isn't able to get any sort of legal protections as full-time employees. And I mean, how, How independent are you really when, like, for instance, if you're a driver for a driving service, a rideshare app, you've still got to pay your own car expenses. You've still got to pay your own parking tickets, which I totally feel like those companies should pay for if you're a driver for them and you end up getting a ticket. Anyway, um, some drivers end up earning like three bucks an hour after they have to pay for all of this stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also depending on if you have to cancel rides
2: mm-hmm. and there's all sorts of stuff that can influence how much money you're actually going to take home. And then, of course, on the flip side of that, there are all sorts of concerns over consumer protection, including price transparency, privacy risks, uh, safety standards. And these are the kinds of issues that could leave users very vulnerable and have left users vulnerable, particularly lower income users or are users in more and just marginalized groups in mm-hmm. general who have fewer channels for legal
4: recourse yeah, and I mean, you know, Kristen was talking about the push to get Uber to have cameras in their cars. Uber comes back with that saying, um, it's too much of an expense for our new drivers. Um, and Uber's been slammed a lot for loopholes allowing them to hire people with felony convictions because the thing is, and this is a thing that like taxi people have been like hammering home a lot. Uh, and, of course, they have their own agenda. But, you know, Uber background checks use a database that can only go back for seven years. And they refuse to fingerprint their drivers versus taxi companies who check a prospective driver's fingerprint records against a database that theoretically includes their complete criminal history in this country. And the whole fingerprinting thing is why uh, companies like Uber and Lyft pulled out of Austin, Texas, for instance. Austin was ready to clamp down on you know, safety rules and regs to try to protect customers. And Uber was basically like, nope. So since, what is it, spring of this year? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there, it was
2: actually because of something called uh, Proposition 1 that failed, that according to the Daily Dot, would have replaced an ordinance adopted in December that required... Uh, them to conduct those finger uh, fingerprint-based background checks.
4: Well, yeah, and the whole thing with those FBI fingerprint checks is they take 16 weeks. And Uber's like, nope, that's a barrier to new drivers getting a job with us so that they can quickly make money. And it just really sounds like, well, no, that's more of honestly a barrier to you making money off those drivers. but. That's neither here nor there. Um, actually, that's the whole point of this podcast. <laughs> um, and in general, for communities, though, you know, that Business for Social Responsibility report talked a lot about the inclusivity of these apps and services and the benefits for low-income communities. But the thing is, um, because of all the money that's going toward... Rideshare apps, for instance, that could actually result in a weakened push for expanded public transit options. But like, who is that affecting? Because a lot of people who don't use rideshare apps still need better public transit. But like, if you and I don't care anymore about expanding public transit in Atlanta because we're able to just hop into a lift, that takes away a lot of the like vocal citizen muscle that can go into saying, no, 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 we still want you to expand MARTA. Please expand, Marta. So essentially, this means, and this is what
2: we're going to do in the next half of the podcast, when we come back from a quick break, is talk about the privilege wrapped up in how the sharing economy is structured. And we'll get back to that in just a second. This episode of Stuff I
1: Never Told You is brought to you by Catan.
0: This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan.
1: Get Catan at CatanShop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code MOM at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise.
0: This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought
1: to you by HelloFresh.
4: So obviously, no surprise to anyone. Racism, hello, it is a main factor. And a lot of the crap that goes on with the gig economy, you know, that, that BSR report was like, it's an end to racism. You don't have to discriminate against anyone because of their color. Oh, if only life were that great. Um, In late May of this year, 2016, there was a 25-year-old black man who sued Airbnb for racial discrimination. And as... Reports we read pointed out his account reflects a recent Harvard study that documented widespread discrimination against African-American guests on Airbnb. Hello. Uh, How many articles have we read talking about black individuals men or women or both who show up to their airbnb rental and like have the cops called on them because people think they're breaking in yeah hence the hashtag
2: airbnb while black also the hashtag uber while black
4: oh yeah same thing yeah exactly and airbnb's response seemed to be really strong but to me it comes out like a lot of hot air so they're Responses to, of course, denounce racism. Uh, they engaged the former head of the ACLU-DC office to find ways to, that they can address the challenge of racist Airbnb hosts. Um, they suspended or banned people who violated its anti-discrimination policy. Like, for instance, uh, trans woman Shady Petoskey, uh got a lot of noise going on Twitter when she recounted her experience of Um, having her Airbnb reservation uh, declined because she was like, hey, I'm a trans woman. Uh, The world stage is not necessarily the safest place for me. So I always make sure to disclose to potential Airbnb hosts that I'm a trans woman because God forbid I show up in person and there is some sort of awful thing that happens. Anyway, uh, her post on Twitter ended up getting a lot of attention in Airbnb. And I think this was like a year after the fact. Airbnb ended up banning that host as part of their anti-discrimination efforts, which, I mean, that's great, but it would be better if there were policies and procedures in place to prevent that from happening from the get-go. um Airbnb also actually hired former U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder to strengthen its anti-discrimination policy.
2: Yeah, I mean, personally speaking, I give them props for acting as to me quickly as they have, um, in between a big study that came out a few months back, um, really quantifying the unconscious bias and outright racism, um, that happens through their platform. And I do think that they're serious about it. Um, and it goes to this issue of, You know, having to take an intersectional approach to how you are creating these apps and realizing that, yeah, I mean, you're going to have to try to use technology to work around unconscious bias in addition addition to racism. Yes. Yes. And that's why you have straight up anti-discrimination policies. But in terms of unconscious bias, that's when we get into the questions of like, okay, profile pictures maybe that is not uh, necessarily something that we need to have, because that sparks it. There have been um, situations where uh, there's a woman of color who noticed she was getting turned down an awful lot for Airbnbs, so she switched her profile picture to not reveal
4: her ethnicity, and lo and behold, she's getting acceptances left and right. Well, exactly, and on the flip side, there's a similar profile picture issue with hosts, so there was this research cited in Forbes that found that black hosts are charging about 12% less for equivalent rentals by non-black hosts. And it's because they might be having a harder time attracting guests and have to keep their prices low. The whole thing is that Airbnb tells new hosts that they quote, may want to charge lower than average rates to attract travelers at first like when you first get on airbnb no matter who you are start lower attract a good audience that can give you good reviews and then raise your prices from there but the researchers were finding that black hosts lower prices were evidence of a permanent disadvantage why what is the layer there well airbnb if you've i mean if you've ever used it i've used it numerous times when you're searching for rentals, you know, you've got the picture of the rental front and center, but also like right there on the side is the picture of the host. And sure, you know, you can have, as the example is, you can have the Eiffel Tower as your profile picture. But the whole thing is that you're using your face to put people at ease. Like, hey, I'm a human. I'm not a, some predator or whatever. Like you can trust me and rent from me. Um, but the fact is, Whether it's conscious or not, a lot of people are passing up units being rented out by black individuals because of racial bias. Well, and also to the Eiffel
2: Tower example, our social media habits, especially if you look at Facebook and Instagram, the things that we are drawn to the most are photos, not of objects, but of actual people. So I can see why like you're and also, too, if I were to. Run across a, an Airbnb, um, listing with an object rather than a person. I know there would be a moment in my head of like, who is this really? What are they,
4: what are they trying to hide? Well, and I mean, that's a real fear for a lot of people because there have been so many reports too of harassment and sexual assault, uh, by women who have showed up at a rental and the person who's there to hand them the keys or share a room is not the person whose picture was on the site. So like even if your picture's not the Eiffel Tower or like a dog, you know, there's still so much potential to lie and take advantage.
2: Right. And uh this has me thinking too of the difference between Airbnb and Older rental platforms like Verbo and mm-hmm. HomeAway, um, which my husband and I have used a number of times, especially for uh, things like renting things like cabins and uh, beach condos, which makes us sound fancy, but we go there <laughs> because we can't afford a fancy one. Um, and there are no on the listings; you only see yeah a thumbnail of the actual home. Mm-hmm. Once you are thinking you really want to rent it. And then you go to the rental page, you can see their profile, and there's usually a picture and the way to contact them and all of that. But it is more focused solely on... What the place looks like rather than who you're renting from, which is kind of interesting. And, uh, in one of these pieces focusing on Airbnb, I think they reached out to Verbo for comment and Verbo was like, no. Nah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I'm not sure why, but yeah.
4: Well, yeah. And I mean, those researchers cited by Forbes definitely said the profile picture should be less prominent. Maybe don't even have one on the search page at all. Move it inside and, um, ask yourself as the renter, why it matters, especially if you're renting a home. I can understand like if you're sharing a space, if you're not doing the whole home option, maybe you just want a seller who is also a woman, for instance, to feel safer. But I mean, I think asking yourself about your biases is always a good exercise. But since people, you know, are, are not always so great at doing that,
2: mm-hmm. uh there's the, the guy who launched Noir bnB b particularly for, people of color looking for rentals who don't want to have to deal with all of this nonsense. And we're seeing, uh, you know, women who exclusively want to rent, especially for like a shared situation where someone's just renting a room. They only want to rent to other women, Mm -hmm. but they don't want to be seen as discriminatory. They're just like, well, that's my comfort level too.
4: Yeah, I mean, and and that's an issue of like, we're starting to self-segregate in the interest of safety. I mean, yeah, that 27-year-old guy, Stephen Grant, was one of the many, many African Americans who'd had the cops called on him and his girlfriend when they showed up to check into their Airbnb. And he basically just said, yeah, we launched Noir B&B, it's called, um, because we realized there was a lack of concern for the safety and comfort of black travelers. And we wanted to fill that void. Um, he said, human beings create technology, but there needs to be more diversity when it comes to the creators of said technology. And that is a massive point we're about to hit, too. Um, but we have to talk about, obviously, sexual harassment and sexual violence. The unfortunate thing about it when it comes to these gig economy apps is that the numbers are really murky. Um, sometimes things get reported. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes people report things straight to the app and not the cops, sometimes vice versa. And the cops don't always necessarily write down... You know whether it was a sexual assault in an Airbnb versus a taxi, or whether it was a sexual assault on the street. They don't necessarily break it down that way, right?
2: Um, and in case you are listening and want to know more about this, we'll post the link, of course, on this podcast post. But you can also go to who'sdrivingyou.org dot org because there is no, you know, uh, other database of these kinds of instances, and they itemize. Inci- reported incidents involving Uber and Lyft specifically and break it down by crime. And you're scrolling through, and first there are deaths, and there are a number of them, there are assaults, and then you scroll down to alleged sexual assaults and harassment, and the list just goes on and on and on and on. I'm just, like, I mean, I was stunned. I mean, I, I, I knew that this was an issue, mm-hmm. but just seeing it when you're just scrolling through, it... it
4: It will hit you. And Uber, for one, kind of refuses to take any responsibility for this or refuses to admit that the numbers might be as high as they are. Um, Because why would you lie and go on this uh, website that you're talking about, Kristen? Uh, Why would you take the time to even make that up? Um, there was a little bit of a kerfuffle. BuzzFeed published screenshots from a former Uber customer service rep that showed more than six thousand tickets in the database for sexual assault and nearly six thousand for rape. And Uber was like, "Nah, no, that's not that's not right." They said that only five of those were legitimate rape tickets and fewer than 170 uh, sexual assault cases.
2: Uh, legitimate rape? Are we really getting back
4: into that oh, rhetoric? Oh. Yeah.
2: You know, you know, like you're in sketchy territory when that happens.
4: Oh yeah, and uh, what they blamed the inflated numbers on, or which they said were inflated, was typos. They said people meant to type "rate," like as in the fair, instead of "rape." Or they were saying tacky things like your prices raped my wallet. Right, and and to that example, that's why uh, no, don't don't use rape in that
2: context. That is not rape. Um, and just anecdotally, I don't think that my iPhone has ever autocorrected anything to rape. I'm shrugging my shoulders right now. I I don't know. That's well, obviously, that's
4: just my personal experience. But well, sure, but I mean Uber. The the lifeblood of all of these apps is publicity, right? Like, word of mouth. The app is cool. It's hip. It's cheap. It's got a great user experience. You just enter things. It's so easy. Your credit card info is stored in there. You just... You don't have
2: to tip.
4: Yeah. At least, like, not handing over the cash. You can tip after. Right. And so, like, oh, good. You're protecting me from, like, potentially getting mugged by some delivery person, but... Um. yeah, you're not protecting me against sexual assault. And there was this horror story that is all over the Internet of this 19-year-old man who was locked up and sexually assaulted by his Airbnb host in Madrid. And he didn't know whether his phone, because he's from Massachusetts, he didn't know whether his phone could access international emergency numbers. So he texts his mother from, like, this basement in Madrid. She contacts Airbnb. They tell her to just call Madrid police herself rather than, like, sending an agent to go check on him. Um, and when she did, when she took the number that they gave her, that she could not get through to Madrid authorities. And Airbnb, in like a half-hearted defense, said, oh, well, we thought the assault had already taken place, so we didn't really know what you wanted. And they wouldn't release the address to her. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't give any information. And that's where
2: we get into this tough Issue too of yes, customers' privacy needs to be protected, but also what do you do in these kinds of situations? Like, where is the line and who's making these calls and why aren't better systems set up in place? Yeah, I mean,
4: there's a lot of like hands up in the air of like, nope, yeah, nope, we will take your money and we will act as the go between to like connect users and renters, but. Right. These companies want as little liability as possible. Oh, for
2: sure. Hands down. Um, and really at the crux of all of this is the issue of privilege, because I forget who it was um, who who made this excellent point where, oh, yes. OK, so this is and Kale over at Broadly, who says, the lifeblood of the sharing economy is the idea that the public space is a safe space wherein individuals can open up their homes to strangers and reap the financial and cultural dividends. Okay, just take street harassment alone. We know for a fact that the safe, the public space is not unequivocally a safe space.
4: Yeah, I mean this is the assumption uh, held by the people who are developing these apps and these technologies that you can not only walk safely through public spaces, but ride, sleep, work, free of harassment, and that it's okay. You just trust. As long as, you know, they see your profile picture and they have your credit card information, you know. If they trash your apartment, Airbnb will help you cover that cost. Like, don't worry about it. Everybody can trust each other. What in the world are you talking about? You're talking about
2: public spaces according to cis straight white men. You know, and and, and not saying that, like... Those guys are all terrible. I married one. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's the privilege issue yeah. and the fact that we need to accept that no, this isn't some kind of, uh, colorblind utopia, nor should it be, you know?
4: Yeah. And I mean, Kale points out that, um, you know, for women, people of color, for trans people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. Our homes are our retreats from these contested public spaces. It's a retreat from getting hollered at on the street by people who are disgusting. And in the sharing economy, you know, someone else's home or car, even if you're paying for it to use it, it's not necessarily a safe space. And uh, she interviewed Dr. Fiona Vera Gray of Durham University in the U.K., who has studied a lot. Uh, about sexual harassment. And she said that basically when it comes to public spaces, women in particular uh, are forced to moderate their desire for freedom and safety. You end up restricting your own freedom in order to feel safe. No one has to lock you up. No one has to bar your door. You feel that you have to lock yourself up in order to feel safe or to recover from having gone out into these contested public spaces. And so Dr. Vera Gray was telling Kale about the so-called just world hypothesis. And this is like a perfect encapsulation of the privilege conversation. It's the idea that the world is essentially a just place and that if we just all come together and share, it's going to be mutually beneficial for everyone So she says, if you're a man who's been brought up to see the world as a safe space, as a fair space, a space that people can move and interact in freely, then you'll have that view. And the
2: only thing I would change in that quote is a white man. Because Mm -hmm. if we're talking about safe public spaces, that does not apply to African-American men. No. At all. So it seems like the Band-Aid that we're sort of slapping on this issue as quickly as possible because the sharing economy is growing as fast as it possibly can because billions of dollars is this issue of self-segregation. Right like the noir b&b that we've already talked about um that uh, stefan grant started and then in terms of gender there's been so much media attention around uh services like chariot for women and she taxis which are just two of the women only rideshare services that have been launched directly in response to sexual assault and sexual discrimination complaints uh they exist uh Abroad as well. There are some in India. In France, you have Blah Blah Car, which is just a cute sounding you know, service that also allows women to request female drivers. But
4: there's been a lot of write ups, too, about very trollish men who are launching sexual discrimination complaints against women only ride share things. Because that's I mean, and and that's awful. And also
2: goes to the point that while these services might be necessary, they are not a fix, you know, until until we're willing to get at the root of the problem and take action on
4: that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the solution is not also to just tell the gig worker to get a better job. Oh, yeah. You hear that all the time. Oh, well, you are complaining. Just get a better job. You hear that. With everything in the economy, just get a better job. Just get a better job. Like, it's so easy. Talk about privilege. Hello. Talk about privilege. And you have to keep in mind, too, with things like this, a lot of the people who are working in this economy are working in it to supplement an income already. So maybe they're not making enough money. Maybe they're literally just trying to provide for their children. And they've also perhaps had to drop out of the traditional economy because our system is so jacked when it comes to things like childcare.
2: So we do have, thankfully, advocates who are tirelessly working on this, including the National Employment Law Project that really wants to restructure the 1099 contractor relationship to offer workers greater protection. And they have proposed a whole model for this. Yeah, so they
4: say that we should expand the statutory employee framework. This is basically where contractors are considered actual workers for certain regulatory purposes like tax laws. Uh, And this would provide, quote-unquote, portable benefits. And policymakers would directly require companies that use these 1099 workers to abide by labor standards like the minimum wage, to pay into Social Security and state workers' comp, and unemployment insurance funds. So basically, like not only in relation to the gig economy but in general to treat workers people in this country who maybe we're criticizing them because oh you're part of the system you're you're not you're not contributing to America and it's like well um let's treat all of our workers then as humans who deserve dignity and respect and to be able to provide for their families and NELP is also NELP, uh, the National Employment Law <laughs> Project. Uh, NELP also wants to see an avenue for on-demand contractors to be able to organize and collectively bargain uh, around labor conditions. Basically, it's the same song and dance we've seen forever of like, hey, you know what helps people who are uh, marginalized and voiceless? Unions. Uh, I mean, regardless of your opinion on unions, that's generally what helps Working conditions, yeah, labor organizing, and that's how we've gotten all of the workers' rights that people are worried (laughs) the sharing economy is eroding. Yeah, and I mean you've got Seattle, which is planning to give rideshare workers the legal right to collectively bargain, and I mean that that's just one effort. I'm sure there are many others in many other cities um, across the world, but. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's so great to be able to press the button and have my groceries delivered or have someone show up to take me to the airport. But, I mean, there is so much more wrapped up in that because it's kind of like um, when you talk about public assistance and people are like, uh, you know, I hate that people are dependent on this thing. Entitlement. Entitlement. And it's the kind of thing of like, um, you know... People who are working for these gig economy apps, these sharing economy apps, are trying to contribute to society. They are trying to make a living wage and support themselves and potentially their families. Um, but in the same time, they're like trapped in this vortex of like not Making enough money and oh, yeah. not having protections. Because the convenience factor
2: applies not only to us consumers clicking, you know, the, the app and instantly having whatever we need right at our fingertips. But also, if you need some income, there's the the convenience factor of it, too, mm-hmm. where you can... You know, I think it does lower the barrier to potentially making some money, which is very tempting. And, uh, unfortunately, there are too many instances, and I've heard this from so many Uber and Lyft drivers, particularly uh, on my rides home from the airport, because they're usually, it's like the longest time I'm in the car. Mm-hmm. And, um, I always try to talk to my drivers. Um, and I've heard so many times just about what a hustle It is. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, one, another, (laughs) not to, uh, to seem like I'm sponsored by Lyft, but one thing I do like about Lyft is that you can tip your drivers.
3: And if you have a good driver,
2: tip your driver. Seriously, tip your driver. Um, because A, good karma, just like being a good human. And B, they're not, you know, they're not making a lot of money. Um, so a lot of the time. So the main takeaway of all of this is the technology, terrific. The potential, incredible. But if we want to truly make it inclusive, we have to truly make it inclusive. Yeah. You know, inclusivity is not uh, limited to convenience.
4: Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing I was thinking of when we were discussing like racist hosts on Airbnb, for instance, um, or other, you know, property rental places, I think there is an attitude That like, well, I'm a human with a space to rent, so I have the right to get on Airbnb and rent it to whoever I choose. And like, to an extent, yeah, but there's nothing stopping. I mean, Airbnb has launched all of these anti-discrimination efforts. There's nothing stopping Airbnb from being like, you know what? We just really don't want you here if you're such an exclusive renter.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it sounds like they've done that with, for instance, with the uh, the woman who turned away, uh, the trans woman. Yeah.
4: Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, and I think all those things are positive, but I guess what I'm trying to say is making it way more clear up front of like, maybe we just don't want you here if you're going to be racist or perhaps if you are using it just to like lure women or something. Well, it sounds like. In that
2: situation, we are really uh, mixing up accessibility and inclusivity, Mm -hmm. you know, just because it might be really easy to access and use doesn't mean that the barrier of entry is as low for every body, you know, just because you can access an app doesn't mean you really can access safely the service. Sure. So I am so sure that there are a lot of people listening to this who have a lot to say. um, And we want to hear about this from all ends of the the share economy, whether you are an employee, a customer, whether you are a full-fledged, handy, lift, uh, uber corporate employee, um, because this is such a major issue. This isn't going anywhere, nor are we proposing that it should but um, there are definitely ways that it already in its infancy, relatively, can be reformed. Mm-hmm. So MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send all of your emails. You can also tweet us at Mom Stuff podcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by
0: China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness.
1: Yes, and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a a lovely conversation. Um, It was really fun.
0: Yeah. And with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which... Which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers in traditional or now not.
1: And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering, or cut crystal plates, and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. This episode is brought to you by
0: Arches and Halo.
1: Arches and Halos Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you.
4: All right, well, I have a letter here from Megan in response to our Mad Women, Women in Advertising two-parter. Uh, she said, I was beyond excited to see that you did a two-part series on women in advertising. I majored in advertising in college with the dream of becoming a creative director. However, I quickly learned how hard that career path is, especially for women. I interned in the creative department of an advertising agency as a copywriter my junior year of college. Even though several women worked at the agency, everyone in the creative department was male, except for one of the copywriters and an art director. However, both of these women seemed to fit in better with the guys than me. I wore dresses and makeup often because I like to. I was told by a male creative director that I dressed up too much, even though I didn't look much different from the women in other departments. My senior year, I applied to be the creative director for my class's advertising capstone project. Since I was the only applicant with experience working in a creative department at an ad agency, I felt confident that I would get the position. However, I lost out to the only guy who applied. Later, this guy would say to his team of all women, "'Women just aren't as creative, and women can't be funny. I'm not even kidding. This was a 22-year-old college-educated man saying blatantly sexist remarks to his team of women, and I was the only one who ever stood up to him.'" Unfortunately, this was not the end of my experience of sexism in my advertising career. I once had an informal interview with a male creative director who after 10 minutes told me that he didn't really see me as a creative and that I should work in the typically female-dominated account services. As an introvert, I never once considered account services, but I guess the way I looked made this particular creative director think I'd be a great fit. Eventually, I gave up on trying to make it as a creative in an ad agency because I felt like I would never be the right personality fit, and I wasn't willing to sacrifice who I am for my career. Today, I work as a marketing manager for an in-house marketing team. I get to do a little bit of everything from creative to research to analytics. Currently, my team is made up of women, and I have to brag that it is the most creative and productive ad team I've ever worked with. Sometimes I do miss parts of the ad agency life, like free beer and late-night brainstorming sessions, but what I like better is working somewhere that I feel appreciated and respected, and I don't think I would have experienced that in most agencies if I'd stayed on the path to become a creative director. Oh boy, Megan. Well, I'm glad you found somewhere that makes you happy. Thanks for writing.
2: So I have a letter here from Amy with a positive story about being a woman in the ad industry. She writes, I'm a VP director at a large media agency, the mom of a three-year-old and a one-year-old, as well as having a spouse who works full-time in marketing too. To say my life is hectic is an understatement. I spent the first eight years of my career in the same department run by the same woman whom I eventually reported to. As a working mom herself, she made it her mission to look after, challenge, and mentor women and moms on her team. When I announced that I was pregnant with my first, we began informal working mom lessons once a month to discuss and prepare for how my life would change and how to manage my career and ambitions accordingly. I was actually coached and told that you've proven yourself to us by her and others, which gave me the confidence to push for flexibility I needed. My team and clients know that unless something critical is going on, I'm unavailable from five-ish to eight-ish while I pick up, feed, and play with my kids. Send me whatever you need and you'll have a response by the time you're in in the morning. I feel empowered to do this thanks to this old boss slash mentor and watching other working moms and mentors around me leave for the train at five or go on a kid's field trip and still earn VP and SVP titles. There are countless women I know who will name this woman as a key reason they remain in the industry today. I'll also note that four out of the five years I've been working entirely remotely. When my husband's job required us to move to Chicago, I've been able to continue working for this company in other cities. Even better, I'm not the only person doing this, and we have a few people all over the country who for some reason or another are working from home. We've also set up a working parents group, note parents, not moms, where moms and dads can identify working parent mentors, ask for advice, even if it's just recipes kids will eat, and generally support each other in demanding jobs. Advertising is still tough on women and moms. Just last night, I had to hide in my bedroom and take a 6 p.m. call with senior clients while my kids banged on the door saying they wanted mommy to make dinner and not daddy, and that sucks. And there are definitely times I hate the inflexibility that client services lead to. But in the media agency world, we also have to make money by being perpetually understaffed, so things are not all rosy. However, I did want to paint a picture of my extremely positive experience as a woman and mother in the industry. And Amy, thank you so much for sharing that. That's so good to hear, and also just such a perfect case study of women supporting other women, parents supporting other parents in the workplace, and we need more of it. So if you have stories to share with us, MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about the gig economy, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
3: HowStuffWorks.com.
1: If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other, through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple
0: Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Dear Young Rockers Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio.
4: Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.